<clears throat> so if you were here last evening, we uh, did a unique study, and a unique take last evening, a couple evenings ago. We did a unique study on the incarnation, and the incarnation is simply God becoming flesh. And the, the, the way we looked at the incarnation was the incarnation is the means by which mankind's nature is advanced. And right at the top, you're like, whoa, what, what does that all mean? Um, simply this, that man was ordered and created in such a way that his main telos, his main goal, was to see God. Uh, in the covenant of works, God gave Adam things to do, and if he did these things, then he would have this uh, vision of God, a hyphen communion bond that went beyond knowing God, but also knowing God in the right way in which he will see him for who he is. And that is the hope and joy for the believer, is it not? Uh, if you go to a believer's funeral, uh, you should... Yes, feel sorrow, but also feel joy for that believer. And as our uh, catechism says, uh, when a believer dies, their immediate vision is of God. So if you ask, what happens after we die? You see God. That's what happens. And that was going to be the, that's the most happiest state uh, that the believer will ever uh, uh, be in. Well, that was the goal that Adam was to obtain, the beatific vision. Uh, but what happened was when Adam fell, our nature took a step back. There's defects in our nature. And if you were here, one of the defects is how we reason. So you might ask yourself, when I am eating a lot of food, why is it that I can't stop eating? And I'm eating to the point where I am sick. Like, there's a point where I know that I should stop, but I don't stop. Right? You go from being really smart to being really illogical. Well, that point of being really illogical is a defect of the fall. The reason why you are overeating to the point that you are going to throw up is because you have lost your sense of reason. Your emotion has taken over your reason. I want it more then I shouldn't have it, <laughs> right? And we'll get into that this evening when we talk about the soul of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we are moving along in our Christology series almost to the point uh, where we, are, we will be finished, but uh, we're going to begin this evening uh, with a look at what is called the Passion of Christ. And I'm not talking about the Mel Gibson movie, uh, the Mel Gibson movie is, though, a betrayal of uh, the passion narrative, uh, the scenes leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That is called the, the passion narrative or the passion of Christ. And what I'm going to do this evening uh, is I want, us to, I want us to look at what is called soul psychology, okay, Psychology is the study of the mind, but I want to look at the soul of Christ in the garden. And in doing so, it's going to help us answer a lot of questions, such as, why does this person do this? Why can't, or why can't they ever do this and get it right? Why are they, why are they always doing this? Um, and we're going to look at some of the uh, defects that we have because of the fall. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26, 
uh, we will be in we will be here <clears throat> and we're not going to be doing an exposition of the text, but we're definitely going to be gleaning a lot from the text, uh, which next week we will be doing more of an exposition of the text. But Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 38 says this. <clears throat> then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him, uh, with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my as I will, but as you will. If you're taking notes, there's just two points to consider this evening. The sorrowful uh, uh, soul of Christ in the garden the sorrowful soul of Christ in the garden. And number two, the conflict and resolve of Christ's soul in the garden. So number one, the sorrowful soul of Christ in the garden. And number two, the conflict and resolve of Christ's soul in the garden. And I am all for long points, as you can see. Um, the sorrowful soul of Christ in the garden. And number two, the conflict and resolve of Christ's soul in the garden. We have read from Matthew chapter 26, but we also have this account in Mark's gospel. Uh, we have a little bit of it, but not to the full extent in John's gospel. And we have a vivid description of it in Luke's gospel, in Luke's account. And in Luke's account, it's a little bit different because Luke adds that Jesus sweat drops of blood and there was an angel that came to comfort him. And I, Luke really... Uh, brings alive uh, the current state of Christ's soul in the garden. Like, how sorrowful was Christ? And Luke says, well, he sweat drops of blood, and he needed an angel to comfort him. Right? Uh, very, very, very um, challenging words, especially when, in regards to Christology. How, how are we to deal with sorrow? We, but we know that Jesus is truly God. And him needing comfort from an angel, but we know that in his human nature, he has the Holy Spirit without measure. I said last or a couple of evenings ago that he had the beatific vision. So how can he have the beatific vision and still feel pain? I'm not going to answer that question, but if you want to ask me that uh, later, then you can. But let's consider the sorrowful soul of Christ in the garden. Again, the garden scene reads, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father is possible. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, as I will, but as you will. The Garden of Gethsemane begins what is called Christ's passion. It's the start of his physical sufferings that will ultimately climax on the cross. It's, it's sort of like a... a, a the stairs that, that just escalates farther and higher and higher and higher, okay, in the soul of Christ. It's, and, and here, when we read of this garden scene, there, there are many things that we can highlight. But I want to focus this evening on the soul of Christ, specifically the sorrow that he feels in his soul. One theologian has said concerning the scene at the Garden of Gethsemane, here for the moment was the loneliest, saddest soul the world has ever had living in it. 
the Lord himself. If there was ever a person that was the loneliest and saddest, it was Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this evening, I'm just going to do, um, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to bring out a lot of what Christ was feeling. We'll do that next Sunday evening. Um, but he says to his disciples, Jesus Christ says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Now, we have to ask the question, why is Christ's soul sorrowful? Why is Christ's soul sorrowful? And it's interesting how the text is written. Because in verse 37, it reads, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began it is as if when Christ enters the Garden of Gethsemane, a rush of sorrow filled his soul. Just out of nowhere, just, just came into him like you know, waters uh, covering the sea. Because in the Garden, what we have is the shadow of the cross began to be more and more of a reality to Jesus Christ. It's as if we have the Garden scene in in hovering over the garden was the cross. Now, that's not to say that Jesus was ignorant of what he was purposed to do. Jesus knew exactly what he was born to do. He read the scriptures. He understood that he was born to suffer and to die. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, that which, uh, that which Jesus spoke of, and I'm sure and he, if you read the Gospels, he spoke of his death frequently. That's what he spoke of, and that's what he thought of was just moments away. It's similar to when I was going to get married. Uh, I got married in October, and oh, Leela, if you're listening to this, if, I'm sorry, but I, it's October, I, I remember. Um, and in January... Um, I could see myself at the altar. I can see the bride. I can see my brother who's you know, officiated the wedding. I can see everything happening. But as we moved closer to July and to August, then I started to feel the emotions of one that's going to get married. Well, it's similar to Christ. It's almost as if 33 years the father was preparing his son for this time of when he will... Um, die for our sins. So many times in the gospel accounts do we read that when people wanted to kill Jesus, he just slips away. Right? He just vanishes. And my theory and what I believe following a lot of the reformed scholastics is um, you couldn't kill Jesus unless he willed for you to kill him. Meaning this, if, a, if, a, if Jesus was standing under a building, if a building fell on him, he wouldn't die unless he willed to die. But we read that he would slip away to the, in the crowd unseen, or he would hide himself from people. But in the garden, Jesus knew that there was nowhere to hide. There was no place for him to slip away. The suffering, the agony, the pain, the betrayal, the hatred, the abandonment, all began to penetrate into the soul of Christ. All these things that Christ was going to endure became more and more of a reality to the point where it was, it was as real to him as if he was really going through it. 
And as a result, we read that he began to be sorrowful, even to the point of death. Thomas Goodwin, when he talks about this section, and we'll talk about more about this in next Sunday evening, but when we read that Christ's soul is sorrowful and troubled even to the point of death, Thomas Goodwin says it's a likened to a, a, a woman who's given birth. And women, if you've ever given birth, you know, especially your first child, if you've never gone through it, the pain that if I was going to die, this is what it feels like. Now, that times 10,000 infinity plus two is what Jesus Christ felt. Men, I don't, we don't know that pain, but women, you know that pain of what it feels like to die. And Thomas Goodwin says it's like a woman giving birth. Now, was it sin for Christ to fear? Because it says that he's sorrowful and troubled, which implies that he's afraid of something, that he's fearful of something. And we have to ask, is, was it a fear for Christ to, to, to fear? Or was it a sin for Christ to fear? Was it a sin for Christ to be afraid? Well, Thomas Aquinas and Zacharias, your sinus is helpful here, as they distinguish between two types of fear. Aquinas says, we are speaking of fear now, insofar as it makes us turn, so to speak, to God or away from God. So fear does two things to one. It either turns you toward God or it turns you away from God. For since the object of fear is an evil, sometimes on the account of the evils he fears, man withdraws from God. And this is called human fear. While sometimes on the account of evils he fears, he turns to God and adheres to him. The latter evil is twofold. Evil of punishment and evil of fault. Accordingly, if man is to turn to God and adhere to him, through fear of punishment, it will be severe fear. But if it be on account of fear of committing a fault, it will be filial fear. For it becomes a child to fear offending its father. If, however, it be on the account of both, it will be initial fear. What Aquinas is saying is basically this, that fear causes us to do two things. Either we move away from God in fear of punishment, that is called severe fear, or we move toward God in fear of offending him. That is called filial fear. Do you remember when you used to get your, um, I remember when I used to get my progress reports. And uh, I can remember there was times when I have a basketball court in my, in, in the, my mom's um, uh, front yard. And uh, I remember one time uh, my father asking my brother, man, he really loves basketball. It was on a Saturday, but I was waiting for my progress report. <laughs> I waited all day. Um, and I was in fear of punishment. That is called severe fear. And there were times when I would do something bad, and I would be in fear of displeasing my father and mother. You might have had that before. That is called filial fear. You don't fear the punishment, but you fear offending. And in fear of offending, you move toward the one whom you fear in love. Your sinus makes this point more clearly. He says, severe fear, such as the slave has for the master, which consists in fleeting punishment without faith and without a desire and purpose of changing the life, being accompanied with despair, flight, and separation from God. Such a severe fear differs greatly from that which is filial. 
Filial fear arises from confidence and love to God. That which severe arises from a knowledge and conviction of sin and from a sense of judgment and displeasure of God. Filial fear does not turn away from God, but hates sin above everything else and fears to offend God. Severe fear is a flight and hatred, not of sin, but of punishment and of divine judgment. Filial fear is connected with the certainty of salvation and of eternal life. Severe fear is a fear of expectation and of eternal condemnation and rejection of God. Essentially, as we can see, that severe fear is the fear of those who despair, those who have no hope, those who doubt. How many of you have had that type of fear before? It brings with it all of this um, uh, doubt and worry. But in the garden, Jesus doesn't doubt the promises of God, for he says, not my will, but yours be done. So we can't say that this is severe fear, the fear of despair. I would say the fear of the damned. Severe fear runs from God. But what happens in the garden? Does Christ run from God? No, unlike Adam, he moves toward God. He meets God in the garden and prays. Jesus didn't have this type of severe fear, for this is the fear of the sinner. Rather, Jesus had filial fear. He remains confident in God when he says, Your will be done. In light of whatever I'm feeling, your will be done. He didn't uh, turn away from God in the garden, but rather he ran toward God in fear. Mind you, this is the fear that we are to have as Christians. We are commanded to fear the Lord, not fear the Lord in a sense of punishment, but fear the Lord in a sense of offending him. We move closer to him in love. Now, this doesn't mean that he feared of offending his father because he sinned against his father. If, if filial fear is the fear of offending his father, then does that mean that Jesus was afraid of offending his father? No, because he wasn't a sinner. I would even argue on the cross, the father wasn't even offended by his son. We'll get there, though. If there were any was a time in Christ's life when he hated sin, it was in the garden. Rather, that which afflicts Christ most in his soul is the full contemplation and understanding of our sins and he being so grieved by them. It's him understanding sin and understanding the infinite weight that he owed to God. He knows the sins of his people and he knows that he must become a sin offering for his people. And that knowledge alone is enough to stir in his soul holy fear of offending his father. Why? Because he knows he must present himself to the father. Ultimately, what's taking place in the soul of Christ is as he beholds our sins in the light of God and who God is, God is holy, he's just, he's righteous, he's all glorified, all that. And seeing sin through the eyes and the knowledge of God, he hates sin evermore and he grieves over them because they're contrary to what he loves. God's nature, his justice, his mercy. 
What else brought sorrow and fear into the soul of Christ? We can say that it was the betrayal and abandonment that he was going to, that was going to happen to his soul. The betrayal of his friend and disciple Judas and the abandonment of his disciples brought great fear and great sorrow to his soul. And this is what was prophesied concerning Christ in the Old Testament. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Job 19.13, and he has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. Job 19.19, all my best friends despise me, and those I love have turned against me. For three years, Jesus gave all that he had to the, in the lives of 12 men. He ate with them. He taught, with them, taught them how to pray. He, he taught them different things about God's word. These men were front row at all of his sermons. They witnessed all of his miracles. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew that just in a few hours, one disciple will betray him. Judas is going to come with an army in the garden and all the rest will abandon him. I don't even know the man. Now, it's not as if Jesus was a machine, that he was unaware and he didn't, he didn't long in love, companionship in terms of friendship. It's not as if Jesus was a machine and he didn't love his friends dearly. He didn't enjoy, as if he didn't enjoy their company. But in our case, we know what it's like to lose dear friends. Many of us have lost dear friends. But the difference between us losing friends and Christ losing friends is if we really evaluate why we lost a friend, we can think of many reasons why they stopped being our friend because of who we are. There's many reasons. If we did the if we did the deed and you know walk did the list, yeah, I can see that because I am like that. Yeah, I can see that because I do act that way sometimes. But there was no fault in Christ. There was nothing that these men could see in Christ and say, "Nope. I'm not with him anymore" other than them fearing for their own lives. And lastly, the sufferings unto death is what brought Christ sorrow and fear. Is Christ fearing death a sin? Is it a sin for Christ to fear death? No. Is him shrinking back at the thought of him suffering physical pain unto death wrong? Is that wrong for Jesus Christ, who declares the end from the beginning? He knows that he's going to be raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Absolutely not. In fact, given his circumstances, fear and sorrow are the right responses. Given what Christ is going to endure in just a few hours and moments, fear and sorrow are proper to one who was in those circumstances. You see, friends, all of Christ's emotions and passions were never misdirected. But he always felt the proper emotion toward an object. He sees an object, 
And he has a proper emotion and passion toward that object. And sorrow and fear is a right response to one who is about to be tortured. If you were going to be tortured to death, what would you fear or feel? Well, if Jesus Christ took on a true human nature, then he must feel the same things that we would feel if we were in his circumstances. And this is so unlike us, is it not? Now, there's no doubt that many of us would shrink back at the prospect of death that's just around the corner. Many of us would have that same fear, I'm sure. But many of us, on the account of the fall, allow an object to stir up within us sinful and disordered emotions and passions. Let me give you an example. When a man looks at a woman, can a man look at a woman, an object, without some sort of desire to do something with them that they should be doing with their wives? Yes and no, but more likely no. Can that happen to a woman? Can a woman look at a man and have her emotions stirred up to where she goes beyond that man is handsome and that is an image bearer of God to, I want to do something with him that I should only be doing with my husband. You see, our emotions are disordered on the account of the fall. We see an object and it causes us to have an emotion and response that we shouldn't be having. We see someone that's been blessed with a gift from God, and what do we say? I want that. And we, if we, you know, didn't practice self-restraint, give it to me, it's mine. I'm going to take it from you. Case in point, kids. Kids show perfectly the effects of the fall. Another kid has a truck, another kid comes, I want that, give it to me, it's mine. But with Christ, all of his emotions were not in a disordered way. But when he would see an object, he would not allow that object to stir in his soul emotions that he should not have. Now, this, is, this applies so much to us. Because what we see in Christ and one of the applications, the only application that I wrote down is, Jesus Christ teaches us what it means to be human in a right and godly way. Now, let's consider, and we'll get there, let's consider our second point and final point, and that is the conflict and resolve of Christ's soul in the garden. We considered the soulful, uh, sorrowful Christ, uh, soul of Christ in the garden as he considered his, uh, what he was going to do, and we saw that those those, those, those emotions that he has of sorrow and fear are right responses to what's going to happen. We read in verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, this verse has confused many. And on this verse alone, 
I would say, you can tell a lot about one's Christology by how they exegete this verse. Because I've read many people who say that what's happening here is there is a conflict between Jesus and the Father in such a way that he does not want to do what the Father wants him to do. And there is a disharmony within the Trinity. Now, that's false and heretical, by the way. Um, I want us to consider this, though. When Jesus says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want you to see that there is both a conflict and a resolve taking place. A conflict and a resolve taking place. In this quote here from Christ. Here we see a conflict of our Lord when he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knows what's going to take place. He knows that he's going to die. And in many ways, he sees the horrors of his death. Just like when I was getting closer to my wedding date, I can visually see myself there. I have no doubt to think that Jesus saw himself on the cross. He saw the thorns. He saw everything. He knew what's going to happen. And he says rightly that I humanly, I don't want to undergo that. And again, is this a sin? Is this wrong? No. It's not a sin for Christ to say, I, in my human nature, as man, don't want to undergo suffering and pain. I am sinless. I have done nothing wrong. It's a perfect and right response to his circumstances. Hugh Martin explains this well. He says, quote, considered simply in itself, and I don't know if you've ever considered this. I haven't until I read this. To desire exemption from the wrath of God was the uh, dictate of his holy human nature. Considered at once sensitive and reasonable and holy. Not to have felt this desire, instead of being holiness unto the Lord, would have argued, what we tremble even to think of while we know it could not be. Daring contempt of the divine anger and will. To say such impressive views as Jesus now had on his father's wrath, and not to be filled with an earnest longing to escape from it, would have argued that he did not possess a true human nature with all of its sinless sensibilities, which are of the essence of humanity. What Martin is saying is this, if Jesus had not petitioned the Father for the cup to pass, that we might rightly call into question his sinlessness. If he didn't petition to the Lord his father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, then we can say, was he truly sinless then? If he had not begged the father three times remove this cup, we could rightly question whether he possessed any real sense of the holiness of God. And if he did not shrink back from that, we might question this man's sanity. You don't walk into something like that without having some shrinking back, no matter who you are. Again, Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. And, but notice what he says next. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, there's been much talk about this section, about the two wills of Christ. We won't talk about that, but what we see here is we see a movement from conflict to resolve. Thomas Aquinas explains, in saying, let this cup pass from me, he indicated the movement of his lower appetite and natural desire, whereby all naturally shrink from death and desire life. And in saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, he gave expression to the movement of his higher reason, which looks on all things as comprised under the ordination of divine wisdom. John Calvin says, when Christ was distressed by grief and fear, he did not rise against God, but continued to be regulated by the true rule of moderation. What these men are saying is this. When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, his desires are being controlled and directed by his reason. What he wants, what he desires, his lower appetites, the lower parts of the soul are being guided and directed by the higher parts of the soul, his reason, his intellect. And that's why we say it goes from conflict, there's conflict in his passions, to resolve. In his mind, he resolves it. He has a desire, but he does not let that desire alter his reason. He doesn't say, oh yes, I fear this, okay, let me, let me get out of Jerusalem now. <laughs> but he says, your will be done. Now, friends, this is quite opposite with us, is it not? We first have a desire, and then upon having that desire, we present that desire to our intellect and will. And we make a judgment based upon what? upon what we want and not what is good and true. We have allowed, in this case, the lower parts of the soul to direct the higher parts of the soul, meaning we've allowed our desires and passions to control our intellect and will. And in doing so, we're showing the effects of the fall. Have you ever wondered, why is that man steal all the time? Because he's presented with an object... He says in his lower appetites, in his soul, that he wants it. That want is presented to his higher part of the soul. It's presented to his reason, his intellect. And what does his intellect do? It gets controlled by what he wants. So he takes it. Not because it is good. Not because his reason says, if you take that, you're going to, you're going to jail. You're going to get a fine. You're going to get a All these things. But he takes it based off what he wants. Not what his mind says that is good. Why does a man cheat on his wife? Because he's following his passions and desires. His mind is telling him, don't cheat on her. She's going to leave you. You're married to her. God hates divorce. All those things. 
but his reason, or but his emotions and what he wants takes over his reason and, and intellect and will and says, I'm going to cheat on my wife, not because it's good, but because I want it. This is an effect of the fall. Because in the garden, Adam was ordered in such a way to where whatever he wanted, it was controlled by his reason. And his reason was controlled by God's will. It goes God, reason, lower appetites of soul, desires, and passions. Now how does it go? It goes lower parts, passions, desires, overrides our mind, and I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it anyway. But this is not the case with Christ. Jesus was not infected with original sin. Thereby, all of Christ's desires were subject to reason. I don't want to go through this human suffering. He desires that in his soul. But he does not let that desire override his reason of what? God's will. He knows that he must do God's will. And he keeps that at the forefront of his mind, not allowing his wants and needs to infect and to take over what is good and necessary. There's always a resolve in Christ that rightly orders his emotions. And that resolve is God's will. So, that's the movement. And if you have questions after, <laughs> but that's the movement from conflict to resolve. He desires something in his soul. If there is possible, let this cup pass from me. That is a real desire. But he does not let that real desire override his reason. God's will. Nevertheless, not my will. Not what I want. Not what I desire, but what you want. And an application of all of this is simply this, that Jesus teaches us how we are to be properly human in order in, and as created in God's image. You see, friends, we prayed a couple of months back, and even this morning, Pastor Antonio did a wonderful sermon. And one of the, um, in, in, in the sermon, he talked about big decisions and, and things like that. And even when, uh, a couple of months ago, when we, when we did prayer, we, did, we asked for prayer. Not months ago, weeks, was it last week? Last week, we, we talked about it. if anyone has any big life decisions, let's pray. Well, how many of us, let's say our friend gets a new car, Based upon our friend getting a new car, our emotions stir within us. And we say, I want that car. And then we go out and get it. And then what happens? Now we got a car payment. Our, our wants and desires and wanting that car overrode our reason. That is why the Bible tells us to conform to the image of Christ and renew our mind. Renew your mind daily. Allow your reason to be controlled 
by God's will and allow your wants and desires to be controlled by your reason. This will help with your sin problem. You see sin, you want it, you desire it, but there has to be a resolve in you that says, no, not my will, but God's will. You must allow your reason to override your wants and desires, just as Christ in the garden. What he wanted was not important. What God willed was important. And what did God will? For him to be a substitutionary sacrifice on the behalf of his people. What if Christ said, I don't want these things, and then shrinked back and then got out of Jerusalem? Well, then we would question whether or not he was really sinless. Because only sinners do that. Only sinners allow their emotions to override their reason. But it wasn't the case with Christ. It went from God's will to his reason to his emotions and passions. And that's how we are to live in this world as well. You see something, you see an object, don't allow your emotions to override what is good. And what does the word of God say? What should we have? Right? But also, too, we see in Christ that uh, he exemplifies for us this holy fear that we are to have to the Lord. Jesus Christ was not exempt from fearing the Lord, fearing his Father. For he read, and he know, knows quite well, fear is the beginning of wisdom. The type of fear that we are to have is this filial fear. Not fear of punishment, but fear of offending our Father. And even in light of that, he moved toward God. That is why when we sin, as we close, when we sin, we should not move away from God, but move toward God in love. Right? As we now look at and consider the Lord's Supper, we have to remember that in the elements that are presented to us is the one perfect life of Jesus Christ. As we have already done a lesson on images of Christ and how images of Christ are not to be put up in churches or anywhere, what we have before us is the image that Christ has left for us. He's left for us bread and he's left for us juice or wine. And he's done so not for us to merely look at them and say, this is a reflection of Jesus Christ, of his perfect death. But rather, he wants us to feast upon him spiritually. It's not merely just look at him visually, but spiritually feast on him. And when we do so, our confession says that the Holy Spirit nourishes our souls. So if you are malnourished, if you feel and need spiritual aid, you don't need a book that says 10 steps to happiness, but you need the Lord's Supper. That's what you need. This is our spiritual aid. So let's take a moment.
and let's consider our sins in Adam and also the sins that we have committed throughout the week. I think if anything that we should pray for, it is for God to renew our minds and not allow our emotions to be stirred up in such a way to where we sin and move past our reason. But we are to have the mind of Christ always. Let's pray and then let's fellowship with our Christ.